RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. Welcome to Money Talk on Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Thursday, the 28th of April. In today's business headlines, President Xi Jinping has stressed efforts to strengthen infrastructure construction and build a modern network of infrastructure. He said investments will be brought forward for infrastructure projects that are beneficial to industrial growth and safeguarding national security. He identified transportation, energy and water resources as a focus, but new types of infrastructure, such as supercomputing, cloud computing and artificial intelligence, will be included in the government's push. Profits at Chinese companies, industrial companies, grew by 8.5% in the first quarter of 2022 from a year ago to 1.96 trillion yuan. That's about 300 billion US dollars and versus 5% growth for January to February. State-owned enterprises' profits rose 19.5% year-on-year, whilst profits at private companies increased by just 3.2%. Secondary home prices in Hong Kong fell for the third straight month in March to a 14-month low. Prices fell 0.7% to the lowest since January 2021. Home prices fell 3.2% in the first three months of the year, wiping out the 3.19% gain seen in the whole of 2021. The European Union is discussing with its allies a phased-out ban on Russian oil starting from next week. The European Commission is consulting with the US and the G7 group of the world's wealthiest nations before making an announcement. Brussels says it wants to avoid provoking global price hikes, which could in turn also undermine international support for Western sanctions against Russia. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fowl and Louisa Fock at the Bank of Singapore. With a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold of Sapro Group. And do please take a look at our Facebook page. There's lots of business and finance information on that. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 is the page. And also look at our Twitter feed at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. On Wall Street on Wednesday, a comeback for US stocks from steep losses on Tuesday failed in the final hour of trading. The Nasdaq Composite Index, which was up 1.7% at the high of the day following a 4% plunge the previous day, lost all its gains and closed flat at 12,489, its 2022 low. The S&P 500 Index added 0.2% to 4,184 and is heading towards a monthly loss of 7.6%, its worst monthly performance in two years. The Dow rose 62 points to 33,302. Shares of Facebook parent Meta jumped 18% in after-hours trading after it reported $7.5 billion profit in the first quarter above analysts' expectations. Facebook also reported 1.96 billion daily users, a return to growth after the first-ever user decline in the final quarter of 2021. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index rose 0.7%. The UK's FTSE 100 is up half a percent. 
Hong Kong stocks fell to a six-week low at the open on Wednesday following a steep slide on Wall Street. But stocks recovered as the morning wore on. The Hang Seng Index shed 1.4% at the low of the day before ending 11 points or 0.1% higher at 19,946. The tech index rose 1.7%. Hong Kong exchanges and clearing posted its biggest quarterly profit drop in five years as IPOs dried up. The exchange's net profit fell 31% to 2.67 billion Hong Kong dollars, worse than expected. Shares of HKEX fell 0.1%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite hit an almost two-year low before rebounding as investors looked for bargains, sending the index 2.5% higher by the close to 2,958. The Chinex in Shenzhen posted its biggest gain since March the 17th, rising 5.5%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil is at $105.90 a barrel. Futures contracts tracking Europe's wholesale gas price gained about 20% before pairing gains to trade 8% higher after Russia's Gazprom suspended supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. Gold is over 1% lower at $1,186 an ounce. And one other commodity to note this morning, Malaysian crude palm oil futures soared almost 10% to a new record high after Indonesia expanded its cooking oil export ban to include crude palm oil to ensure domestic supplies were stable. And prices are on track for a 23% monthly gain. Government bonds sold off across the board. The 10-year Treasury bond yield jumped 10 basis points to 2.83%. And the US dollar rose to its highest level since 2017 against a basket of currencies. The euro fell to a five-year low of 105.5 after Russia's Gazprom said it will halt gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria. The Japanese yen is down 1% at 128.5 ahead of the Bank of Japan's monetary policy meeting on Thursday. The British pound, which is down more than 2% against the dollar this week and hit a 21-month low yesterday. It's at $1.25 and a third cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and 84 cents. A Chinese yuan, which is down more than 3.5% month to date, came under further pressure in offshore trading. It's currently trading at 6.59 and Bitcoin is up 2% at $39,100. In Asian Pacific stock markets, in Australia, the SX200 has risen 0.6%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is up 0.1%. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea, up about two-thirds of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a gain of about 200, uh, 200 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Times 8.10. Let's join our guest, personal wealth advisor, Enzio Von Fahl, is with us, as he always is on a Thursday morning. Morning, Enzio. Morning, you, Peter. And also with us this morning, Louisa Falk, who's China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. Morning, Louisa. Morning, Peter. President Xi Jinping has stressed efforts to strengthen infrastructure construction, and he wants to build a modern network of infrastructure. He said investments are going to be brought forward for infrastructure projects that are beneficial to industrial growth and also safeguarding national security. He identified transportation, energy and water resources as a focus, but also new types of infrastructure such as super computing, cloud computing and artificial intelligence. Um, Enzio and Louisa, what, what do you make of that, uh, that plan? 
I think it's great news because in developing economies like China's, Keynes actually works, and that's because the projects are going to be implemented, executed by local labor. This is very different to a place where I lived for many years in Germany where we imported a lot of guest workers, Gastarbeiter, from Turkey. So crazily, all of the money that the Turkish people was, that the Turkish laborers were given was sent back home at the behest of their wives, of course, back home to Anatolia and Istanbul, etc. So the key is that in, in developing economies like China, infrastructure projects do work because they're, they pay out to local laborers who in turn spend 80% of that on goods and services. Um, I think the other thing you can look at is the senior government officials or President Xi has sent a very clear signal. Because if you look at the committee meeting since 2018, uh, this is probably the first time that it's highly specifically mentioned to support cyclical growth. And I do see that it could mark a potential inflection point for the infrastructure effects asset investment to rebound, which has been hovering about 2 to 3% growth uh, since the tightening. Thank you. Mm. Is also, I, I was wondering, does China need a lot more infrastructure? Because it's already got super efficient roads and, uh, and trains and airports. But it's, it's talking also about new types of technological infrastructure as well, like supercomputing, artificial intelligence. And um, that's going to make China a very, very modern economy, isn't it? Uh, yes, I, I think if you look at it in contrast or in addition to the traditional infrastructure, like what you've mentioned, uh, they got the so-called AI data centers, which align with the Eastern data, Western computing initiatives. At the same time, it's uh, also aligned with the ESG, the E environmental in a sense that like uh, energy efficiency, water, etc. Also, Peter, I would just add that the Chinese thereby are really burnishing their capital stock, which, as we all know, for growth is a crucial value because it's the value of the capital stock and the growth in the labor supply that really determines growth rates going forward. So even if the growth rates in the aggregate may be slowing a little bit, the fact is that the capital stock is being burnished and that will propel mm. growth further going forward. He said, um, President Xi said, development and security must be well coordinated. I'm wondering what he means by that and if he's saying, or if China's quite alarmed by these Western sanctions against Russia. They've seen what happened there, including, you know, sanctions against the uh, finance economy, the internet and so on, and sees this as maybe uh, posing, you know, big risks to China as well. Um, I think security, you can look at it from a broader spectrum in a sense that data security has been mentioned many times as one of the good things that the government is focusing on. And in addition to that, uh, energy sufficiency or self-reducing uh, the reliance of import has also been mentioned in the past. So I think the security is now encompassing a broader uh, perspective. Mm. China's been reluctant to do this, to boost infrastructure so far, hasn't it? Because it's been worried about soaring property prices in the past and, and, and taking on uh, and local governments racking up a lot more debt. Um, is, is the economic sort of slump uh, may, may be making it uh, more now open to these, this type of spending again? Absolutely. That's obviously why Keynes, you know, that was his claim to fame. 
so that you, you do this counter-cyclical spending to get the economies going again. Of course, let's not forget that there's also that National Party Congress in fall of this year. So that's a little bit like the midterms in the U.S. In other words, a pretty important political date that people have to work towards. So, yeah, I think it's all great that they're improving mm -hmm. the infrastructure spending. God knows America could really do with a little bit of that. But it, it, it's still a long way away from a consumption-led economy, isn't it? This is really China's old model for boosting growth. It's often said it wants to change that. Uh, it wants to be more consumption-led. Um, but here we are, we're reverting back to type again. Well, I would respectfully differ because the it's, it's a little bit of a two-step process. Let's just walk through this. The labor gets a job building a digging ditches in the middle of China somewhere, makes more money, takes it home, spends 80% of that on consumer goods and services, very much, of course, at the behest of his wife, because it's the women who push consumption, not the guys. And so I think that there may be a secondary effect. The only primary effect would be if you boost consumption by, say, doing, making consumption tax-free, if you will, in other words, having tax incentives. But I think this is a pretty good solid step because it means that you're, you're actually boosting it through the creation of jobs and they, they, they're sustainable. Do you think this, this front-loaded infrastructure plan, is it going to be enough to stabilize the economy, do you think? Um, I think if you look at the number itself, it's actually happening. Um, I think year to day, if you look at the local government special purpose bond, those that have been issued and utilized is about 36% of the quota. If we look, compare with the same uh, time period last year in 2021, uh, it was only 7%. So we are actually having a quite major ramp up since second half of this uh, last year. Mm -hmm. And we've got um, a Politburo meeting coming up in the next couple of days. This is going to take on a lot of significance, isn't it? Because there's a lot of disappointment with the PBOC's sort of go slow approach in monetary easing. People are really looking now to this meeting to see is it going to come up with uh, or what sort of economic plans is it going to come up with? Uh, yes, I, I think uh, it has been clear that uh, since the National People Congress in March, government has been put more focus in terms of physical measures um, to support growth. I mean, the issues with physical measures is the transmission will take probably a little bit longer because you need to have all the stimulus to work uh, slowly through the system. The other point that I would add, if I may quickly interject, is that the if the government, if the PBOC does in fact massively flood with liquidity even more, then that means an even stronger renminbi depreciation. I expect we'll be getting onto that later in the show. So I think that they maybe there's a little bit of caution there that they don't want the renminbi to rise, but they don't want it to fall too much either. Mm. Now the Financial Times is reporting that actually China's cabinet is split overstimulus measures to counter the economic slump. Vice Premier Liu He is reportedly concerned that the government's underestimating the economic impact of its crackdown on the property sector and the lockdowns in Shanghai and elsewhere. Uh, but, uh, and he wants to uh, ease the pressure on the real estate sector, but there's at least two other vice premiers who want to keep the pressure on developers. Is, is Liu He right? I think he is. I think that the um, there needs to be a lot of 
easing going on because the um, just because they've got to get things going again in China, and I'm sure they will. Um, at the same time, just how you implement this easing on the property sector, which has been pretty rampant in its abuse, perhaps of the of just using credit lines far too egregiously. I think that that's maybe something that needs addressing. So um, I don't really know what he specifically means by easing more on the property sector, but. On the whole, I think you can't, on the one hand, say we want to boost infrastructure spending. At the same time, we want to cut back on property and keep the clampdowns going in the health sector. It doesn't work. Okay. Now, profits at Chinese industrial companies grew 8.5% in the first quarter of the year from a year ago. That compares to 5% growth uh, for January to February. Um, if anything, I'm rather surprised, actually, industrial profits holding up better than maybe people would have thought, given the economic uh, slowdown. Well, let me just jump in, Louise, if I may. The, um, the key, I think, is that there's obviously been a massive margin compression going on because if the profits have grown by 8.5% and of that the revenue has grown by 127 then the margins must have fallen by about 4% to get back to that 8.5. So mm -hmm. I'm afraid that there's been a massive margin compression going on, and that, I think, needs addressing. Um, the other way that you look at it, because if you look at all the high frequency data and the lockdowns that we've seen, um, currently there are about four to five cities in China that are in full scale lockdown and more mm -hmm. than 30 cities in kind of partial lockdowns. If we put all these together, they represent more than like 20% of the country's GDP. Um, and most of this happened probably towards the end of March. And we do believe that some of these impact is going to filter through in the April or, or even May data later forward. Now let's turn our attention to the uh, the markets. More than uh, 238 billion US dollars in market value has evaporated from the MSCI China index since March the 15th when the market hit a five-year low and losses for the year are now 2.7 trillion US dollars. Are Chinese stocks looking cheap, do you think? Do you think we've reached the bottom or is there worse to come? Um, if you look at it from uh, any kind of valuation metrics perspective, uh, valuation is not demanding in a sense that they are definitely trading like more than 10% discount versus the historical average. The issues that probably investors is facing is Earnings downward pressure may continue, especially when uh, onshore Chinese market are going through the first quarter result season, uh, given all the lockdowns and associated disruptions. So I think you really have to let these uh, earning adjustments going through probably for another three to four weeks and before we have a more clarity of the valuation. I'm particularly keen on the ch undervalued Chinese or perhaps overvalued Chinese consumer goods sector because if you have more employment coming through by, by virtue of the infrastructure spending, more people pocketing larger wages, and at the same time you have the renminbi continuing to fall, meaning that the imported inflation rises, you're paying more renminbi per dollar worth of goods from, from overseas, then you actually find that the room for margin expansion 
in China is larger because you can ex- you can just charge more in renminbi terms for the goods that are there. And I mm-hmm. think that with people getting wealthier, they will take that margin expansion. So particularly in the consumer goods sector, turning that one full loop, Peter, with what we were discussing before, I think that's going to be a big buy, especially the, un- the overvalued consumer stocks at present. Um, I think the other way that you look at it, equities market usually looks forward or forward looking, put it this way. With all that, we talk about like whether it's consumption, infrastructure, potential real estate uh, relaxation. Uh, it all points to a potential economic growth recovery towards the second yes. half. So th- that's why uh, it's probably is a good chance to bottom up on potential market consolidators. But we're seeing foreign funds really dumping uh, Chinese securities. They've sold $7 billion of stock in March, which is the largest outflow in nearly two years. Global funds have slashed their holdings of Chinese bonds uh, by the most on record last month. What is it going to take for them to get confidence back and want to start investing? Less herd immunity. I think there's a lot of comfort in doing what everybody else is doing, but the money's to be made by the contrarians. And I think that it's a story that we've been touting for some time, at least I have, that, that the China market is, is where you're going to find this change in economic time coming through excess supply of money being created, whilst in America, of course, and Europe, totally the opposite, and excess demand for money is coming through. That cannot be good for stock markets. Um, Just quickly, a comment on the week you are on. What sort of impact is that going to have? Imported inflation. In other words, the you pay more renminbi per dollar of per dollar of foreign currency that you're that you're buying into, like hairdressers from or hair hair dryers from I don't know Japan or whatever. Um, and that then means that you can expand your margins in China because you have that piggy. You can piggyback off the off the renminbi price rises by virtue of imported inflation. So that means margin expansion coupled with turnover means a buy on consumer stocks. Okay, well, thank you both very much. You heard their personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Fahl, Louisa Falk, China equity strategist at the Bank of Singapore. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Gone eight twenty four on the phone from Taipei is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, probably the big story of the week has been um, Elon Musk uh, and the board of Twitter agreeing to his $44 billion uh, takeover. He's the world's richest man, but that might even be a stretch just for him. Do you have any thoughts on why he wants to buy Twitter? Well, certainly a lot of speculation. Is he uh, in it just for the good of uh, free speech? And he's, he's obviously made a number of statements over the years with how he views uh, Twitter should operate. And, of course, more recently, he, he was more vocal in that uh, leading up to the time when he increased his shareholding. Potentially, it was going to join the board and then ultimately acquired the company. Is he looking to use it uh, for, for the... The technological side, and maybe he has other ideas about what he could use with the data, or maybe I should say our data, because ultimately it's going to be those of us who do use Twitter whose data uh, could be sold. Uh, 
it's it's hard to uh, predict what what someone with his business record might do simply because he, he does have a record of seeing things that the rest of us don't necessarily see and and he has ideas that the the rest of us can't even contemplate so uh, there's a lot of people saying he's going to lose money well yeah maybe twitter itself might lose money but again there's always the possibility that he'll extract some value out of it in other ways uh, using the technology or technologies that are yet to be developed but the idea that he's only doing it uh, for the public good. Uh, that one I personally don't really believe because uh, ultimately he is a businessman. He has put a lot of money on the line here. And, and on that point about free speech, he says he wants to make Twitter a bastion of free speech. I'm wondering how he's going to go about doing that because he's going to come up against governments um, around the world. The EU have already sent out a warning saying that um, you know, it does expect social media platforms to be responsible, be accountable for users' comment, uh, content on their platforms. Uh, there's restrictions from governments on, uh, on, you know, on promoting hate speech, fake news, uh, propagating government disinformation. He can't get around that, can he, very easily, if at all? He's probably learning a lot about that right now as he begins to take over the company. I mean, I'm sure it would have come up in the due diligence, but the due diligence was very rapid. And yes, this is a, a very legal and regulatory istic type of uh, issue. And uh, the, those who followed regulatory developments in the European Union, we know that they're in the process of implementing two very uh, comprehensive and new uh, pieces of legislation. One's called the Digital Services Act, the other's the Digital Markets Act, which will really increase the types of regulation that you were just referring to. Part of it has to do with monopolies and part of it has to do with how, how platforms uh, use our data and things like that. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot of restrictions and there's the basic kind of police inquiries uh, could be related to threats, violence, uh, political or just in, on a personal level. And then, of course, in this part of the world, Governments also uh, make use of that. And we know that in this part of the world, uh, including Hong Kong and China, governments are not happy with uh, people who have uh, used Twitter historically as a platform to criticize uh, governments that they don't like. And that's going to have a knock-on effect on his uh, growing businesses in China. Uh, do you worry about who's going to be the arbiter of what counts as free speech? It seems like on Twitter, it's now going to be Elon Musk. Is it good that that's in the hands of just one man? Well, I'd like to hope he won't be micromanaging the individual decisions or the content of the He micromanages everything level. else, doesn't he? He might, he's a, he's a well-known <laughs> micromanager. But, but he's going to have a have the obvious decision on, on significant personalities, such as former President Trump and uh, certain members of the U.S. Congress and, and people who are prominent. Ultimately, now they're going to kick that, the, the, the staff going to kick that over to him, and he's going to have to make those very tough decisions. Uh, you know, we shouldn't forget there are alternative platforms out there as well, and maybe this will finally spur one of those alternatives to, to really invest the necessary money to uh, improve those platforms. So that's something to be seen to watch as well, because in the last couple of years, there's been all this talk and some attempts that were unsuccessful to build so-called conservative alternatives where, where people on the U.S. right wing of politics were unhappy with Twitter. They could go. Those haven't really succeeded. Who knows? Maybe if he lets President Trump back on, this mm. will cause someone to build the left alternative to Twitter. Now, there's another angle to this. Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, who himself owns the Washington Post, has raised questions over Tesla's close ties with China. And he asked in a tweet, did the Chinese government just gain a bit of leverage over the town square? Because about half of Tesla's cars sold globally last year were produced at its plant in Shanghai. 
Tesla has survived, uh, thrived in China because of tax breaks, cheap loans and its ability uh, to wholly own its domestic operations. And in fact, earlier this week, the Global Times reminded its overseas Twitter followers uh, that Tesla generated 4.65 billion US dollars in revenue in China in in the first quarter uh, of this year. And China is now Tesla's second largest market. So is Twitter going to be beholden to China, do you think? Uh, I don't know if beholden is the right word so much as challenge, simply because, uh, again, from a government relations perspective, uh, Mr. Musk cannot separate the activities of Twitter or or the content that's on Twitter from his growing and successful business in China. So Mm -hmm. if the Chinese government uh, is unhappy or or even at the prosecutorial level, they're making information requests to Twitter using what lawyers call the long arm of the law, uh, for, for Musk to say one has nothing to do with the other, that Twitter has nothing to do with Tesla or Tesla has nothing to do with Twitter, uh, I don't think the Chinese government is going to say, okay, that's fine. So how he manages that relationship is going to be very, very interesting to watch. Like a lot of companies, he's had his run-ins with uh, Chinese regulators, and this might be something that causes further regulatory scrutiny of his companies if Twitter continues to be a place where there are critics of the Chinese government. Thanks very much, Ross. That's Ross Gold. Business Development Director at SafePro Group. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Um, around Asia-Pacific markets this week, they're, uh, they're all advancing quite nicely. The SX200 is up 0.8% at the moment. The Nikkei, actually, the Nikkei 225 in Japan has just turned negative, down 0.1%. Cosby in South Korea is up 0.1%. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 170 points for the Hang Seng at the Open. Coming up after the news, next on Radio 3 is COVID updates with Jim Gould and Paul Zimmerman. The weather forecast for today, fine and hot. Maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees in the urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. Going to remain fine and hot in the next couple of days as well. Temperature right now is 28 degrees and it's 82% relative humidity. Times 8.32. Here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. A property analyst says he expects a modest rebound in the property market after the latest data showed local home prices had dropped to a 15-month low. In the first quarter, prices were 3.2% lower than a year ago. But Nicholas Brook, chairman of Professional Property Services, says the market should recover this 3% this year. I think 3% is on the whole not too bad, if you like, when you think what we've been through. Yes, rebound, I think, on the way. Developers obviously now can launch. We're expecting probably 1,200 units to be launched in the next two or three weeks. My sense is that as Hong Kong gets back to a degree of normality, if you like, sentiment will improve and we'll see an increased activity. A rebound is on the way, but a modest rebound. I mean, I think if during the year we recover, if you like, the 3% that we mentioned we've, we've lost. Southern District Councillor Paul Zimmerman says the Highways Department needs to address the issue of missing footpaths, citing the death of a pedestrian who was forced to walk on a road near a country park. He was commenting after the latest report by the Audit Commission criticized the Highway Department's maintenance of footpaths. Mr. Zimmerman, the CEO of Designing Hong Kong, told RTHK that this was an issue that needed to be resolved. There are lots of areas in Hong Kong where there is, where there is not, no footpath and people are forced to walk on the street. Uh, in urban areas, uh, you know, especially with this COVID, you can see everybody forced to walk on the streets between Big Wave Bay and, and Shekou or between sections of country parks. And we had somebody being knocked over and killed in, in uh, walking between Titan Country Park and Shekou Country Park. So it's a 
an issue that the highways department is not, not, not addressing. And I'm not sure that the auditor has looked at that. Prosecutors in New York have charged a former billionaire fund manager with defrauding investment banks and brokerages. Bill Huang, the founder of Archegos Capital Management and its financial chief, Patrick Halligan, both pleaded not guilty to the charges. Archegos collapsed when it defaulted on margin calls earlier this year. Damian Williams is a U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. This scheme was historic in scope. We allege that the defendants and their co-conspirators lied to banks to obtain billions of dollars that they then used to inflate the stock price of a number of publicly traded companies. The lies fed the inflation, and the inflation fed more lies. Round and round it went. But last year, the music stopped. The bubble burst, the prices dropped, and when they did, Billions of dollars nearly evaporated overnight. In 2014, Hong Kong authorities banned Mr. Huang from operating in the SAR for four years. The fire service says firefighters are battling.